Hi, I'm Kendall Gilding and welcome back to another My 30 Minutes with me. To celebrate 10 episodes, I thought it was about time that we caught up. The plan is to do a Q&A style podcast every 10 episodes and that may include getting some questions from you. Today, I'll share a little bit about myself and I've turned the tables and let a bunch of my previous guests ask me a question. Everyone from Shane Webke to Kerry Hess. The questions are brilliant. They're really thought-provoking, so stick around. I wanted to start by sharing why I created a podcast. It's something I get asked all the time. It's funny because a lot of people emerge from that isolation period, having created a podcast or something similar, And I know for a fact that Brisbane music stores have sold out of gear that you need to do this style of recording with. The truth is for me, I'm a talker and I love people. The format of what I do is the same every time. We hit record and I've only got 30 minutes to draw the best out of someone. I don't talk to them for an hour and then narrow it down to the most fascinating 30 minutes. What you hear is what happened. They're unrehearsed and spontaneous. And that means there's just as much pressure on me as the interviewer as there is on the guest to give you thought-provoking conversation. This 30-minute chat is something I've been doing for three and a half years, but instead of creating a podcast, I was blogging them on my website. And a few years ago, a friend suggested that I start filming them for YouTube and we could throw the audio onto a podcast at the same time. We actually only got through two interviews before I ended up struggling with fertility. So everything in my life was paused so that I could focus on the mission of becoming a mum. Then earlier this year, I felt that pull of conversations again. I'm a huge listener of podcasts myself, but I'm also a really deep critical thinker and I want to understand people and the world around us better. So I decided to jump back in. I don't have grand plans of making a living from this or finding millions of listeners. I just want to connect with you, connect with people through conversation and perhaps challenge all of us to think a little bigger. What I've been most surprised by is how I now wrestle a constant tension between fear and excitement. Some days I am sick to the stomach with fears and nerves. I could literally get into the fetal position and just hide. I know all of you would know what I'm talking about. But there's other days where I'm so inspired and motivated that I'll chew the ear of anyone who will listen. I want to record a million things and do it all at once and I can't quite control my excitement. But then I'll easily swing from one of those zones to the other within the space of half an hour. So this has been quite an emotional roller coaster for me. What I do know is that both ends of that tension remind me that I'm human. I'm afraid to put myself out there, but I'm also aware that creating helps me feel alive. Something I'm working on at the moment is vulnerability. And if you're familiar with American professor Brene Brown, then you would know exactly what I'm talking about. She has one of the most viewed TED Talks in the world, and it's titled The Power of Vulnerability. And it might seem strange that I'd struggle with being vulnerable. I have a relatively public profile. I'm on television five days a week. I use social media. And if you're a friend of mine, you'd know that I'm actually a chronic oversharer. But there's something about this podcast, because I created it, it feels a little bit like my own little baby in a way, and it means I'm fiercely protective of it. But equally, by putting myself out there, it means I can be judged for it. So here goes. 
Let's start with a tiny bit about me. I was born in Canberra. We moved to Cairns in far north Queensland when I was around four years old. Sadly, though, my early life was shaped by a very tragic accident. My dad, Peter, was killed in a car crash just around the corner from our home, and I was only about five years old. My mum was left with three kids under the age of eight, a single parent who suddenly had to work very hard to help us survive. And my mum's amazing. She gave up so much just to give us a good head start in life. And I'd like to think that the work ethic that I have today and the ability to carry on when times are tough is definitely something that I learned from her. When I was 14, I realized I wanted to be a journalist. My teachers were saying to me, figure out what you're good at and then figure out what you enjoy. And if you can combine those two things, then you'll love what you do for a living. Well, I was really good at English. I finished top of my grade in year 12 and I really loved people. It wasn't uncommon for me to get kicked out of class for talking right from sort of grade two up until year 12. So I worked out at a young age that TV journalism was my goal. And once I fixated on it, I never strayed. When it was time to finish school, I decided to move to Brisbane to study at Queensland University of Technology. I knew that it was one of the best places in the country to get a Bachelor of Journalism. I could list countless journalists to this day that you would see on TV and we all have the same degree from QUT. Those uni days were really hard on me. It was a very big jump going from Cairns where perhaps I felt like a big fish in a small pond heading to Brisbane where it was the exact opposite. And I think it's even harder when you're only 17. It's a big deal to move away from home to a new city and also to be trying to establish all of your future plans at such a young age. I did get through the degree and three years later I graduated. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a job. So I worked in unrelated fields, often maintaining two part-time jobs just to pay my bills, but that did leave little time to chase my dreams of wanting to be a journalist. I ended up doing some weekend news reading on Saturday mornings at 96.5 radio station in Brisbane, and I was so thankful for this little gig because it taught me a lot. I had to get up at 4am, I'd go in, I'd write the news, and I did all the panelling myself to go to air live each half an hour, and it was an absolute thrill. I really, really enjoyed it. And that kind of led to my big break, which was when a producer in Cairns at 7 News messaged me on Twitter, yes, Twitter, for everyone who thinks that no one uses Twitter, they do, he needed a casual over Christmas, and I could not believe it because I was already booked to go home and visit family over that time. And he was looking for someone from Boxing Day, which was perfect. It meant I'd get to celebrate with family and then I could start this casual position. I jumped at the chance, obviously, despite the fact I really knew nothing about television news. I hadn't interned in a newsroom. I hadn't done work experience. I hadn't even really visited before. And I just took this approach of, oh, well, fake it till you make it. And I told him I, I knew what I'd be doing and I'd sent him my little demo from 96.5 and that was enough to convince them to give me a go. And those casual shifts turned into more casual shifts. I ended up working from Boxing Day right through the whole of January because every staff member in that newsroom decided to take annual leave and I covered for them. Those shifts then turned into work on the Sunshine Coast and that all eventually turned into a full-time position back in the Cairns newsroom. It was the steepest learning curve of my life. I had an extremely hard time. I lost nine kilos in the first few months of work because I was so stressed. 
but I just kept going and I'm really thankful for the support of my family at that time because I nearly quit every single week for about a year. A few years later, I was offered a promotion to the Gold Coast. I'd be working in the Surfers Paradise Bureau reporting for the Brisbane 7 News Bulletin. This was a huge jump for me. When you're in Cairns, you don't do a lot of live coverage. You work on your stories throughout the day and they all get packaged up in the newsroom. I knew that by going to the Gold Coast, I'd be doing live crosses, rolling coverage, things that were just on demand. And it's not something I'd ever done before. So I was pretty terrified actually. And this was such a big jump as well, because it was another move to a different city that I didn't know. And it was actually my husband, Tim, who was really encouraging. And ultimately he's the one that made the decision that we would move and give it a crack. And I'm so thankful for that because my Gold Coast days are some of the best days of my working career. I did some wild stories there. And to say I became good at live TV would be an understatement because it sometimes felt like I was on air for days at a time without a break. A year and a half after arriving on the Gold Coast, they decided to launch a local seven news bulletin at 4pm live from Brisbane. And I was being given the opportunity to host. I can't tell you how fun it is to start something brand new when it's fresh like that. We had the opportunity to create something a little bit different to other formats and gave it our own style. And to this day, we still have a few little quirks that are our own. And it was wonderful not having to step into anyone else's shoes. So I knew I was always free to be myself and free to be an amateur and to grow into the presenter that I wanted to be. That was almost five years ago now. So this is my ninth year with Seven News. And to this day, I still get butterflies and an overwhelming sense of joy when I sit down in that chair every afternoon and the opener rolls and we're live on air and it's my time to just let it rip. I cannot tell you how happy it makes me. My chats are designed that you would be inspired by successful people with fascinating stories. So I'm always looking through the lens of success. And I thought I'd start my Q&A by answering how I define success and what it means to me, as this is something I so often ask my guests. Firstly, let me say my definition of success changes all the time. As I grow and learn, the way I view success evolves too. My website has a panel on it and it says, success is when your expectations collide with your reality. I wrote that four years ago and I definitely still think it's true, just that it may be too simple now. You see, when we're measuring success, it is usually something we're planning for. So perhaps it's a target that is in the future. But what happens when you reach that goal? Well, very few people stop and take the time to look around and realize they've achieved what they set out to do. Say you want to buy a house, that home could become a measure of success in your own mind of, you know, being a grown up. You will have expectations about that. And eventually, if you buy the house, that will collide with your reality or the life you're living now. Expectations and present reality are very important when we're measuring success. But more recently, my definition of success has been this. Success isn't stagnant. It doesn't have a marker. Success is personal growth. When we stop growing, we stop living. Therefore, success has no finish line. 
Over the years of interviewing people, I would often find that people who were really, really successful never viewed themselves like that. They would be at the top of their field professionally, come from a great family, have a home, plenty of money, a, you know, a relationship. What more would you need to measure success than all of those puzzle pieces? But these people never thought of themselves in that way. And I've found that successful people all maintain a similar mindset, and that is a what's next. So the goalposts of success constantly shift. As soon as they've achieved something, the goalposts move again. And when you're so busy staring at the next target, you fail to acknowledge the bullseye that you just landed. And that's why I'm so intrigued by the idea of success. In many ways, I don't even think it's real but I want to explore how others measure success and why it can define our feelings of security and happiness. All right, let's kick off this Q&A. The first question is from Kerry Hess, the divine Australian illustrator. She says, how do you find the confidence to be on television and present in public? You probably don't know this, but glossophobia is the very cool and geeky name for a fear of public speaking. I've always found this question pretty tricky to answer because there are photos of me in year one giving a speech, which means I have literally been public speaking since I was five years old. I've had 25 years of practice. I was the school captain in primary school and high school, and obviously those roles required a lot of presenting. And I've always felt a lot like it was something I was born to do. Public speaking is very different to what I do on television every day because when I'm in the studio, I have three cameras, but they're all robots. There's only ever two people in studio with me at a time, a makeup artist and an audio expert who rolls the auto cue as well. So there's only three of us down there. It's hardly public speaking, but I do do a lot of MC work and I know that that can be a lot more daunting because I'm in front of people. Having said that, I enjoy that role so much and I can't really explain why. That doesn't mean I don't get nervous though. And I often find that people think of nerves as a bad thing and you need to rewire yourself to realize that they're a positive. They can be really helpful. Personally, I find they keep me sharp and focused rather than sloppy. If I don't have nerves or adrenaline, I seem to not be caring as much and I know in those instances I don't do as good of a job at my public speaking. My number one tip is to be prepared. If you know what you're talking about, if you've put in the preparation, then you've just got to trust your ability to communicate what it is you're trying to say. I think people are often afraid too because public speaking is putting themselves on display to be judged, which as I mentioned even I'm working through with vulnerability in that department. So I think the thing is to remember, even the most experienced people can still feel fear when it comes to public speaking. You've just got to do your best to be prepared and try to be yourself. The next question is from Erin Holland, a former Miss World Australia and a television presenter. She says, how did you know the time was right to have a family, knowing how hard it is for women to balance both? And she mentions in particular in the entertainment industry as she works in. I love this question because I think it's something every woman contemplates, not just when the time comes to have a family, but so often even when you're picking a career, these are the things we have to weigh up that men would literally have never ever considered. 
The truth is I did not know when the time would be right and it all came down to priorities. My husband Tim and I started dreaming of having a family, but not a family where you've got a bunch of toddlers running around or a newborn baby to cuddle. It's always been more of a time where our kids are older. They're coming home on Friday nights for pizza night. They're bringing their spouse. We're taking holidays together, those kinds of things. It's the grown-up version of our family. I've always really wanted my own little tribe that we'd be close and want to spend time together. And that is extremely different to having a baby, I can tell you. The older I got, I realized it would just get harder to take a break from work. So we made the choice to start trying. And if you know my story, you will know how ironic it is when I say we made the choice because it took years for us to become parents after fertility issues. And that only serves to prove exactly what I'm saying, that timing is everything and you actually don't control any of it. What I love about my marriage, though, is my husband and I are equals. When we talked about kids, it was always a joint responsibility. So the task of parenting was going to be shared. I was super blessed to take six months off work before tag teaming with Tim And now he's taken time off to look after our daughter. And I couldn't speak highly enough of splitting that role in the way we have. The benefits are incredible, particularly for the two of them. They have the most wonderful bond. And I know a lot of kids don't get that amount of time with their father. So it's been really beautiful to see unfold. One thing I will say, I almost worried that becoming a mum might make me less likable or something. It sounds really silly to say that, but you edge into maybe a mumsy territory instead of being young and carefree or something. I guess I was just curious how it would change the way people perceived me. But I've actually had the exact opposite experience. People seem to connect with you in a whole new way. And I've had so many new opportunities since starting a family that had not been presented to me prior to it. And the selling point was that they were looking for a mother. So it's not an either or scenario. You don't become a mum and stop being yourself. And from the moment Olive was born, I still had all the same dreams and passions. I did worry if I would be the same person on the other side of motherhood. Maybe once I'd had a child, I might have not wanted to do what I do for a living anymore, or I might have had a new desire to change trajectory. But the one thing I found was I was exactly the same afterwards. All of my dreams and passions were still there. And the great thing is, when you're ready, you can just jump back in where you left off. The next question comes from my good friend, musician and music writer, Sean Sennett. He's my most recent guest on My 30 Minutes. If you haven't listened to his podcast, please go and do it. His voice is so soothing and it's just the most warm and generous chat. He says, you obviously work hard and put in a lot of groundwork and preparation. You're ready when opportunities happen, but what part do luck and intuition play in regard to success? I feel like it's almost impossible to say what's luck and what's hard work because all the opportunities I've been given come in different forms and from different people. Maybe they saw hard work in me, but perhaps they saw potential and they thought I'd grow into a role. I do know that I always want to give 100% to every role, job or opportunity, but I do not measure hard work as being the first to arrive and the last to leave. In my mind, that is stupid. And that's because I know personally I'm far more effective in a short period of time. 
My motto has always been to work smarter and not longer. If it's possible to get the same workload done in five hours instead of the usual eight, then I'm all for it. So my view and the way people perhaps view my hard work might be a little skewed because I'm not about being there for a really long time if I can achieve what I'm doing quickly. I learned really early on what my tiger hours are, and those are the hours you're most productive. Mine are in the morning. If you ask me to do something late at night, I know I will be relatively useless. I can still get it done, but it will take me twice as long. So for me, hard work is actually more about efficiency, being effective in the time that you have. On the flip side of that, I've been super blessed. You can call it luck if you want. Plus, I believe in timing. I think timing is everything. I don't like to rush things. I'm very calculated and I take a really long time to process everything. Like I mean everything. Sometimes it's an annoying quality, but the older I get, the more I'm thankful for that because it means I have some really healthy boundaries. I won't rush into a deal or take a job offer just because it's a promotion or because it looks good. I like to weigh up every factor and particularly the long-term implications of what I'm choosing to do. Even if it's only a short-term opportunity, I want to know how that could affect me in 20 years time. And not just on my career, but on my home life and on my personal happiness. So I think it's a perfect balance between both hard work and luck. Olympic swimmer Kate Campbell says, how do you approach juggling work, life and family with your ambition and your drive to succeed? She goes on to add, I don't mean ambition in a bad way. I think ambition is a great thing. It pushes us and challenges us, but it can become an all or nothing mindset. And you seem to have been able to juggle your career while still focusing on a personal life as well. Now, I know Kate quite well, and I know she is hugely competitive and extremely driven, but those are perfect qualities if you are going to be an Olympic athlete, because that's exactly the kind of drive she needs. I actually love the word ambition. It means to have a desire and a determination to achieve success. The irony that the word success falls in there. There's this quote that's really famous and its origin is a bit lost because it's been used so much and quite recently it's one that's being attributed to Oprah. But the quote is that women really can have it all, just not all at the same time. And I think that is true. So it's funny when Kate says it seems as though I've been able to juggle everything. I'm not sure I have, but it might be the smoke and mirrors of how it's all perceived I think when we're young, we feel too much pressure to have it all sorted out and to prove ourselves in our chosen field. And we often forget to think about our future. Do I want to get married? What would life look like if this job disappeared? Should I be saving for a home instead of going on three holidays a year? I was really fortunate to find the right guy when I was young. So I got married at 22. And I remember a lot of people thinking I was making a huge mistake because I had just started my career with Seven News. And it was if getting married would diminish my ambition or change my trajectory or something. But it was actually the exact opposite. And the support I've had from Tim at times when I didn't want to accept the promotion or relocate for a job or take a risk, he's the reason I was able to do it because he held my hand and said, we'll go and we'll go together. So I get to live out my dreams today because I made a great choice marrying someone at 22. So if I didn't get married, I guarantee I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. 
But let me give you an example where my ambition took over and everyone suffered. A few years ago, I took on the role of ambassador of the Channel 7 Brisbane Racing Carnival. I was working full time Monday to Friday and the race days were on Saturday for five weeks in a row. So all of a sudden I was working six days a week and that role on a Saturday was enormous. I started hair and makeup at 6.30 in the morning and I usually didn't get home till seven o'clock at night. I had you know, 10 pages of scripts to get through every day, countless interviews, networking, opening a chairman's lunch. It was just a really big day. And weekends are really important for resetting. I've come to learn that I definitely need downtime. And during that phase, I worked six days a week. I absolutely killed myself trying to please everyone. And the only person that usually ends up suffering is yourself. So you have to put boundaries in place in order to manage your ambition and still be able to have a personal life. One of the best ways to manage boundaries is be organized. I am a type A personality, which means I'm a total control freak. And my poor husband has to live with that every single day. But it's the only way we can achieve our goals and then still have downtime as a family. So I heavily prioritize my family and I will work as efficiently as possible so that we can have the best of both worlds. Again, I'd say it comes back to priorities. What are your priorities right now? And they'll change over time, just as they should, as you get older, as you mature, and as you want different things. But you do need to keep asking yourself, what are your priorities? My number one priority will always be my husband, then my children, and then my career. This next question comes from Shane Webke, and it's a really tricky question for me to answer. I think Webby would know why, and maybe that's why he asked me this. He says, what's the one thing that's happened in your life that you would change if you could and why? I don't have a lot of regret in my life. I know I'm still young, so maybe that will come, but I don't believe in having hangups because it just poisons you from making good choices in the future. So there's not a lot I would personally change. I guess if I could rewind time and undo something, it would be to bring my dad back. As I said, he died in a car crash when I was just five years old. Fortunately, I was so young in the way that it didn't impact me quite as much as perhaps it did my older siblings. And I've also been super blessed with an amazing stepfather who I call dad. But when you lose your dad, you can develop what's called a father wound. And you don't have to be like me and have your dad pass away. He could have been absent from your life or even actually have been there, but just wasn't great at loving you. And I guess I just wonder what my life would be like today if my dad was around. Sometimes I wonder if he's proud of me or what he would think if he met my daughter, Olive, because she'd be his first grandchild. You know, would I be doing the same career? Would I be in the same place? Would I know the same people or would my life be completely different? It's just one of those fundamental relationships that shapes your life and it shapes your character and it helps you understand who you are. But I only ever really got one side of that with my mum, and I'd just wonder who I'd be if dad was around too. This last question comes from Rachel Mellis-Smith, the owner of Apero Label. She did ask a serious question, but I wanted to end on a lighthearted note, so hopefully she'll forgive me for taking her second question, which I'm sure she kind of put in as a joke, but here goes. She says, what three non-essential items would you take on a deserted island? Can I take my family? 
Do they count? Because they'd be the number one on the list. And other than that, probably just my phone. I'm really addicted to my phone. It's bad. And I think because it does everything, I don't know what more you'd need. It's my bank, my diary, my workout tracker, my calculator, my camera, you know, does everything. So I think that'd be it. But if you had have asked me what's the one food I would happily eat on the island for the rest of my life, I would say Vegemite toast. It is my favorite food. I love it so much. And it's the kind of food you always have at home. So it's actually dangerous because I would eat that for breakfast, lunch and dinner now. And I actually have to force myself to try other brekkies. So there you have it. I'm almost out of time. I just wanted to say a huge thank you for spending 30 minutes with me and also a huge thank you for the support for this podcast. If you're loving what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate and review the podcast. It helps me get seen by other people. And I'll be back next week with my latest guest on My 30 Minutes.